Mr. Thomas, how long have you been at Hopkins? Well, I came in the 1st of July, 1941, with Dr. Alfred Blaylock. Why did you come, and who is Dr. Alfred Blaylock? Well, Dr. Blaylock, number one, was, at the time, was the, well, before he came to Hopkins, rather, was the, one of the professors of surgery at Vanderbilt University Hospital at Vanderbilt um, University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, when he was offered the head of the department here, the chair, uh, he asked me to come here with him. I had already worked for him about 10 years at Vanderbilt. I mentioned in my research that last year over 1,000 of a nation's top surgeons honored you. What was the significance of this ceremony? Well, the significance of it uh, was something that even I didn't at the time quite uh, gather. And in a response that I gave after the presentation of a portrait, uh, I told the audience that I hoped that the doctors who had been contacted uh, responded uh, to the letters that were sent out by Mrs. Hammond, who wrote it up in the newspapers, because there was a lot of... I didn't realize that over the years that I had been of that much significance around here to be uh, honored or to rec be recognized in this manner. I noticed Dr. Uh, Cooley, I believe, or Dr. Hamlin, one, in my research, mentioned that you were the surgical glove on Dr. Blaylock's hand. What did he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant was that I had been the, over the bounce to the uh, man that was working behind the scenes and was doing the research for Dr. Blaylock while uh, Dr. Blaylock himself was doing, uh, doing patient care, the, the operating, the administration of the surgical department and this sort of thing, wherein that I spent full time in the laboratory with various types of experiments that uh, have uh, made quite some impression upon the, the medical field. What are you all trying to find out in those experiments? What are you looking for? How would it benefit mankind? Well, when the project was first uh, presented, Dr. Helen Tausig presented the whole a uh, picture of the blue babies this on this particular uh, field, and that is in the cardiovascular field. She presented the picture of what these uh, patients, <coughs> these patients appeared like clinically, and she knew the anatomy of these uh, hearts, exactly what was wrong with them, and she felt like that something should, that the surgeon should be something able to do something to correct the situation and she presented the problem and what we were after was to see whether or not the uh, what type of procedure might be followed in order to be able to uh, to help the patient in this project you're talking what project is this that you're talking about? well this is basically the uh, congenital Parts 
uh, where these uh, people, babies, are born with malformed hearts, and usually they're uh, of the, the particular type they call the blue baby type or the tetralogy of fellow. Mm -hmm. This is commonly called a blue baby. This is commonly called a blue baby. Yes, they are. That's what right. usually we refer to them as a blue mm -hmm. baby. Well, in order to be able to do any kind of uh, uh, to try to find out how to cure anything, the first thing we set out in the laboratory is to do is to produce that disease or that sim uh, syndrome or mm -hmm. the picture that you find clinically. We try to reproduce that in the laboratory mm -hmm. and then after we reproduce it, then is the time that uh, you try whatever means you feel like uh, is necessary to cure it. Well, Mr. Thomas, about how many of these experiments did you actually perform before you um, uh, assisted in the uh, op actual operation for the blue baby? Well, number one, I didn't actually assist, even though I was right in with Dr. Blaylock's shoulder for over a hundred of them. But on the experimental side, I would estimate that better than 200 uh, different types of procedures were carried out. Number one, just trying to produce the cyanosis or the blueness, mm -hmm. the type of thing, the lack of oxygen that these patients have mm -hmm. in their bloodstream. Was just this because of a stricture? The, the part of it is from a stricture. Mm -hmm. uh, part of it is from anomalous openings mm -hmm. through the walls of the heart. They have an uh, interventricular defect, mm -hmm. anteratrial defect, with what they call an overriding of the aorta, mm -hmm. that is the aorta displaced over the septum, plus a, a pulmonary stenosis and sometimes a complete atresia, which is a complete absence of any opening at all into the pulmonary artery. Yeah. Um, I was thinking when you mentioned pulmonary stenosis, would you explain that term? Uh, stenosis itself is a narrowing uh -huh. or a stricture. Uh, I think more or commonly, uh, more more uh, more commonly would be thought of in terms of by lay people would be thought thought of as a stricture. I think everybody knows right. what it is, right. or a mm -hmm. constriction, mm -hmm. which would uh, keep the blood from passing freely. Uh, unless it were under very high pressure, and even then it wouldn't pass freely through uh, through the blood vessel. And this stricture is usually right at the, it's just proximal, or that is between the heart and the valves. Sometimes the valves themselves are involved. And in one of the uh, papers where uh, we were trying to replace the tricuspid valve was a purely an experimental uh, thing to try to transplant valves. Uh, at the time, there was no way of taking the heart and the lungs out of the circulation. Where, in the, uh, and at the same time that all of the valves, all of the work with the valves themselves, have to be done. Any replacement, anything would ha was it would of necessity have to be done under direct vision. Uh, the pump or hard lung machine at that time had not been perfected so that it was not available for these, but we were looking forward to the day that we would be able to have the hard lung machine and 
were more or less jumping the gun and trying to see about the see the feasibility of transplanting these valves uh, into hearts where <coughs> uh, in acquired heart disease you have um, a constriction or a stricture of the uh, mitral orifice and that is the orifice uh, from the heart into the or from within the heart from the uh, left atrium uh, or left oracle down into the left ventricle. Uh, these valves following uh, rheumatic fever uh, very often get scarred and uh, they are inefficient. They don't work as valves. You see, the scarring on them keeps them from being able to move freely. So that what we did was, in the absence of any way to be able to cut off the circulation, we took valves from another animal and put them into uh, an animal in another position, which was on the right-hand side of the heart. Uh, besides the feasibility of doing it, of the technical part of doing it, was the problem of whether or not the transplanted valve would survive was the point in doing the uh, Ruthold homologous uh, transplants of the valve in these animals. Well, what I did correctly assuming then that you all really were laying the groundwork for, say, a heart transplant, you know, or open heart surgery today. Yes, well, basically this is what this is what happened. Even though the organ transplant, mm -hmm. uh, as a whole, we, yeah, it's been known for years that mm -hmm. you could not very easily transplant any organ that uh, would be thrown off from one uh, by any uh, body. That is, that from one person to another, one animal to another, that they would just reject it. And even though the um, the fact was known, there was always this uh, possibility of, and still is, this possibility of the uh, the factors that come into the picture now, the rejection mechanism, being someday overcome and may be able to transplant at will All right. organs from one to another. That experiment that you just mentioned, would you say that again, please? The replacement, the replacement of a tricuspid valve uh, cusps by a homologous cusp in dogs. We took the valves from one animal, which we sacrificed, and uh, we sacrificed him by bleeding, mm -hmm. so as to be able to perfuse his head, perfuse the head of the recipient animal, that is the animal we were going to give the blood to because we had to cut off the circulation. Uh, we bled the animal to death, then took the valve cusps out, and during the procedure in uh, replanting them into the other animal, we were perfusing with the blood that we'd also gotten from the donor animal. Hoping that this would help human beings who have heart diseases. Yes, well, hoping that the that at least we would find out whether or not we would be able that it would be feasible to take the valves from one uh, see the valves themselves are a different type of tissue uh, with almost no blood supply and the cusps are so, are so thin that to us uh, it seemed that uh, any tissue that was not 
particular that had a minimum of blood supply to it was less likely to be rejected than something that had a larger blood supply like a whole organ because of the valves in the heart actually you can see right through them they're slightly opaque but they're just that thin would you say then that this was a successful experiment uh, yes as far as it went um the experiment was uh successful we had this uh anybody that sees the paper would say that these valves even though they did not work as such because of the position that they were in mm -hmm. They did not uh, work, they did not have to. The tricuspid is a valve that um, never gets any amount of pressure back on it, but it will start, It will slow down a backflow of blood from the heart back into the superior inferior cava, right. back into the auricle. I noticed that most of your, I noticed that most of your experiments were written up in some learned um, journal, medical journal. Well, uh, most of the uh, medical journals, and of course this is one of the uh, things that over the years I think that might have accounted for some of the uh, for, uh, at least I'll say partially uh, was responsible for uh, my not being included on some of the as co-authors on some of the earlier papers mm -hmm. uh, most of these medical journals will not accept uh, some of them would not uh, during that time would not even accept would not even accept anybody that um, I think it's okay. Would not even accept anybody that did not have a medical degree unless they had a PhD. I mean, they didn't take us a bachelor's degree if you you weren't an author unless you belonged to the field of medicine. These journals, these medical journals, they were strictly highbrow stuff. Which brings me to, which brings me to another question. My research reveals some conflicting information. Uh, one author stated that you had completed one semester or part of one semester of college. Uh, would you address this? I How did. Yeah. I finished. Um, I, I, all right, let's put it this way. I did not complete a semester. I registered at Tennessee State in September, the end of September when school opened. The bank crash of 1929 was in November, and I was then 19 years old, and nobody could tell me, so what can you say to a teenager? I was just pure <laughs> colored folks mad. Your money was <laughs> right, gone. My money was gone, and I didn't bother about no school. I didn't go to school even that day. I mean, I came, when I found out what had happened, I knew that I was sunk right then and there. And I just dropped out completely disgusted. So you did not? Angry and just everything else. No, I didn't even finish that quite first semester. Mm. And I had the money in the bank to finish the whole year. Right. Well, well, I, I also read, too, that you were a teacher of doctors. Is this true? You know, would you address yourself to that? In, in the way of teaching, um, I think that the, in saying teaching, I think they're meaning um, where we have surgeons involved, that there are surgical techniques, the technicalities that are involved in doing various uh, procedures is, is like, um, well, like, well, not quite like um, 
a chemistry lab because there we do have you have fixed objects you're working with and well it's just putting the physiology the tissues the handling of tissues and the technological or technical skills that are required in doing uh, surgical procedures I think are quite different to almost any other technology because of the physiological and biological aspects of it and when they say to teach that uh, referring to me as teaching them it's a matter of teaching them surgical techniques I mean they scrubbed with me they worked with me from students on all the way up to occasionally even Dr. Blaylock scrubbed with me you mentioned they your students could you mention some of these students well Dr. Hanlon Dr. Uh, he's now director of the uh, American College of Surgeons. Uh, this Dr. Cooley, Dun Cooley, who is down in Dallas, Fort Worth area, who has his own hospital. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Dave Sabston, who is now professor of surgery at Duke. Um, Carol Brown, Dr. Oh, just Haller. Yeah. Alex Haller uh, worked in the lab just a little bit as far as, I mean, with me. He didn't work directly. We didn't work, we never worked directly together. Uh, from my newspaper accounts and other research that I've done, you've had some illustrious students, I can see that. Um, going back now to the uh, Blue Baby experiments and the actual operation, it was mentioned in one of the research uh, some of my research that you invented an apparatus for anesthesia in experimental thoracic surgery. Mm -hmm. Am I correct? Oh, thoracic. Thoracic, thoracic, thoracic surgery. surgery. Yes. Would you? Uh, you can call that an invention. You know, they say uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And uh, with all this work we were doing in the chest, we decided, without any decision on anybody's part, you, you, you have to have things to work with. At the time, there was nothing on the market to that would give uh, positive pressure anesthesia to be able to open my chest you have to be able to keep those lungs inflated at the same time the animal has to be anesthetized so it was quite necessary that we come up with something there was nothing on the market commercially to do this so that uh, I call what I call rigging uh, I've made an apparatus that would do just what we wanted to do, and that was to give positive pressure anesthesia. Has it been patented? Um, no, it never was patented, even though we published it. It was published in one of the journals, and it was published in this particular medical journal because uh, one of, uh, in the, the journal for thoracic surgery, uh, because of the fact that there were a lot of inquiries about the apparatus, that people coming into the laboratory during those years uh, saw us doing all this work in the chest and knowing that there was nothing available we knew then there would be a lot of people that would be going into the chest uh, and so that 
Dr. Hanlon was the one that brought up the idea of publishing it so it would be more or less public property and so that the article itself is copyrighted because the journal itself is copyrighted. But as far as an invention, it's, I, I, I never, never thought about it. You're too modest. Look, was this just an excited news person, pa newspaper person who said that this particular apparatus was used in England and other places in the world? No, that was no... Is it really true, or no, were they just true. excited writing about no, it? I saw no. it in my research. No, it wasn't... Uh, there was no uh, excitement on their part. I mean, this is facts. Really Matter of fact, I can yeah, I can show you uh, orders where the people wrote me from all over. I'm, uh, I made arrangements with one of the fellows out at the university in a machine shop out there, and he was turning them out. Mm -hmm. I mean, we shipped them all over the place with right. special moves on because of the fact that the current in some countries, mm -hmm. South America, in England, um, uh, part of it was sent to Japan, but the fellow that was going to get his own motor because he would have to have a special drive for his motor because of the difference in the current in the two countries. Well, who packs it here? I mean, who uh, makes the parts for you now? Uh, we don't bother. It's not even being made now because of the fact that there are much more refined uh, apparatus on the market now. and. That, that was really done mean, because there was nothing at was that nothing, time, yeah. and it was inexpensive. Yeah, no, that's that's just why it that was. my research indicated well, one of the reasons that uh, doctors have wanted your particular apparatus is because it was, was inexpensive. Was it was. Is I that know. right? Okay. I noticed, too, you did something about producing ex uh, the experimental production of pulmonary insufficiency. What in the world is that, and why is it important? <laughs> Gosh. I noticed in my research that you have had published another paper, and it was called The Use of Oxidized Regenerated Cellulose as a Hemostatic Agency in Dogs. And from what I can understand, it meant something, some type of just plain old gauze to stop bleeding. Now, is that what it is? It's not a plain old gauze. <laughs> it's just what they said is this regenerated cellulose <laughs> material that is very good for stopping bleeding. Uh, there's some organs in the body.